Uh, so Matthew 1, 1 is where we want to start. I'm just going to read it, and let's think about the significance of what Matthew has to say. Matthew 1, 1 says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then if you have your Bible in front of you, there's just a long list of names and 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations. We want to think about that. That's how Matthew, follower of Jesus, walked with him, talked with him, hung out with him, saw the miracles. Uh, he gives you the most important thing up front. And this, this morning, I, I want us to ask the question, what is the most important thing that you need to know about Jesus during the time of Christmas? What's the most, I mean, there's lots of things that we should know about Jesus. When I think of the most important thing, I immediately go to Jesus' miracles. Jesus did what no one else could do. I got a good buddy of mine, Dan, you know him, Dan Owens. Um, and I've talked about him a bunch. He's 58 years old. He's in the final stages of terminal cancer. And I follow his blog, and I got a blog this morning. He He's been in Stanford all week. He's missing one lung. They've had to remove it. He's had multiple surgeries. And they found more tumors, and they were able to freeze them in the good lung. But that created sort of, sort of, sort of complications. He was supposed to be in for a day. He's been in the hospital for a week. He finally made it home about midnight last night. While I was sleeping, my friend Dan and his wife Debbie and their son Tyler were driving from Stanford back to their house, and they're finally at rest. When I think about Jesus... My mind goes to his miracles. is the power to transform real people in real suffering. But maybe for you it's not the miracles. You're a little skeptical about that. Maybe it's the teaching. What Jesus had to say is mind-blowing. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Earth. Uh, it's better to give than to receive. When, you're, when, when your enemy strikes you on one cheek, turn to the other. Jesus' teachings over the last 2,000 years, whether you believe in him or not, have shaped the entire Western world. There is no greater teacher. Forget about Socrates and Plato and all the other boys. You didn't see. Yeah, anyway, that's uh, lost. Thank you. Yeah, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Thank you. Someone with culture. Oh, anyway. But there's nobody teaches like Jesus. Nobody, nobody has the words of life. He has wisdom that is still relevant 2,000 years after he said his words. So I think of the miracles of Jesus. I think of the teachings of Jesus. Then many of us, we go to the death of Jesus. We fast forward Christmas to Easter. And we remember that Jesus, although he has the ability to call down all the angelic powers, Jesus can call an army of angels to squash his Roman oppressors. He does not. What does he do? He allows himself to be beaten and mutilated and killed. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So maybe for you, one of those things, his teaching, his miracles, his, his cross, his death, maybe those are the most important thing that you need to think about. But, but let's look this morning at Matthew. Because he front loads what I would never think about, but he connects the dots so that you and I, as we read the scriptures, will see where Jesus fits in the long story of God. So let's just now, with that in mind, look at it again. One line, that's all we're going to look at. This is the genesis, the genealogy, the beginnings of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We are in the final week of a three-week series called, what is this series called? 
Thank you very much. The promise. I, I blanked out. I'm undercaffeinated. Thank you, Tim. The promise. And the promise is looking at what the beginning of the story is all about. Sometimes we read and we jump into Matthew, New Testament, but we, we look at the front half of it, Genesis through Malachi, and we're like, I don't get what this has to do with Jesus. But the series is just trying to get our minds thinking about the connection points because God doesn't have two stories, an old one and a new one. He doesn't have like an old leader like Moses and then a new leader like Jesus. There's only one story in the Bible. And Jesus is the centerpiece of the story. And so Matthew, I think part of the reason why he's front-loaded as the first, first gospel is because of that first line. Jesus is this promised one. So Matthew starts his gospel, not with a miracle, not with the teaching, not with the death, but he starts with Jesus' beginning. So what we want to do is we've already looked at Jesus in the Torah. Remember the Hebrew Scriptures, if you're new to the Bible, the ordering of our uh, Old Testament, our, our first part of the Bible, is different than the Jewish ordering. 100% of the words are in both Bibles. So the Jewish Bible and our Bible as we have it, 100% of the words are there. They're just put in a different order for a reason. And so we looked at the Torah, the first five books, same in our Bible as the Jewish Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that Jesus is there. How do we know that? God created us to be with him, Genesis 1 and 2. But human beings like us, we choose to disobey God and we sin, Genesis 3. And then God makes a promise. Out of the woman, there will be a seed. Singular, not plural. They will be one who will come from the woman and will crush the head of the enemy who's tricked us into disbelieving God. So early in the story, we see that there will be a promise. It's a seed. It's in the Torah, the first five books. And then we see in Genesis 12, I think we have it here on the screen. Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram and says, I'm going to use you. I'll make you, Abram, into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So God's one story starts with theoretical. There will be a seed, a person. Abram's not that person, but from his line, that person is going to come. And as you fast forward and read the rest of the first of the five books, you realize that the biggest figure is Moses. God uses. Now, is Moses the one that's going to bring God's blessing? Well, no, he's from the family line, but Moses is simply a prophet. He's speaking about the one to come. So we ended the first week with Deuteronomy 34. The end of Deuteronomy reminds us uh, that there's been no, no prophet like Moses who's risen out of Israel whom the Lord knew face to face. Read the first part of the story and you realize God is taking us somewhere. And then the second part, the first part is the Torah. The second part is the Nevi'im, the prophets. So three parts, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Tanakh. That's how the, the Hebrews or, or Jews today would call their Bible, the Tanakh, the three parts of the scripture. We looked at the prophets to see what is going on. What do we learn from the prophets? We learn that it's not just going to be from the seed of Abram, but God narrows it even more in the story and says, I'm going to use David. David's one of those big figures, a man after God's own heart. And you're like, Jose, what are you doing? I'm getting us to Matthew 1.1. Because Matthew 1.1 is a summary of the whole first part of the story. And if we don't know what the first part of the story is, Jesus, my friends, does not make sense. 
So in the prophets, in the Nevi'im, we see 2 Samuel 7. David, hard after God, says, I want to build you a temple. God says, no, your heart's good. Your son's going to do it. But here's what God says I'm going to do for you. Like God said to Abram, I am going to bless you. From your line will be blessing to the earth. Now, even David's not asking for this privilege, but God says to David, because I see your heart, I'm going to use your kids and their kids and their kids. And when your days are over and, the re- and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish the kingdom. And so what God is doing is pushing forward, saying, okay, it's the seed, the seed's from Abram, but now the seed is from David. Now pushing forward, David wants to build a place for God to dwell with his people. And we saw last week that in the first part of the story, there's God's seed and then there's God's presence. God's presence is met at the what? The temple. So David has a heart to be with God in God's space. And we know, if we read the second part of the story of the prophets, that when you go to encounter God, you meet him on his turf, so to speak. And God carved out a place called the temple where he would come and his kabod, or kabod, his presence, his glory would be with the people. And and there were points where people could see God's presence. It came like a cloud. It came like thunder and lightning. There were, there were moments in the, in the history of the people of Israel that, that God was as if he was standing there with them. And that happened at the temple. Now, what's the big deal about that? The end of the prophets is the book called Malachi. And we saw last week from Malachi 3 that there is this prophecy about something that's going to happen in the future. And it says, the, the prophet says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. God says, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to the what? To the temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. String this together. We could have read the first two-thirds of the Bible, right? But th- we just summarized it. God has a seed, the seed's from Abraham, the seed's not just from Abraham, but one family line, David. And when, when this messenger comes, then the Lord's going to come. And when the Lord comes, it's going to happen at the temple. So it was very significant. We saw last week when Jesus is presented at the temple and he's just a little baby. These aren't just random acts happening. God's Word, God's story, is being fulfilled. So there is the Torah, and then there's the Nevi'im, there's the law, and then there's the prophets. And then there's this third part that leads us to Matthew 1.1, called the Ketuvim, or the writings. Now, some of you are saying, well, what, which are the writings? Our Bibles are in different orders, so I'm going to put it up for you. Uh, the third section starts with the Psalms. We did a series of seven teachings. It's on the podcast if you want it. The Psalms form a bridge. Huge. Jesus is all over the Psalms. The closer it gets to the Gospels, the closer it gets to Matthew, the louder the noise, so to speak, becomes. There are these rumblings. If you're reading the Bible, it starts vague. But like any good book, it becomes clear. The plot becomes more clear. The characters become more deep and rich. And you want to push to the end to find out the conclusion. And we know, and Christmas reminds us, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of God. Now, it goes Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations. And I just want us to note the framework. This third section starts with the Psalms and ends with Chronicles. And this may seem like, not Chronicles of Narnia, Chronicles in the Bible, okay? Chronicles. 
There are two almost identical books. If you read Kings and you read Chronicles, they tell the same story. First, second Kings, first, second Chronicles, you read them like, God, why are you repeating yourself? Where in our Bibles, we put them, they were put together side by side. In the Hebrew scriptures, Chronicles was last. So now, what in the world does this have to do with Matthew 1.1 and what am I getting for Christmas? You're like, what, what, what does this have to do with anything? Aha, Psalms is going to trigger something. Chronicles is going to trigger something. And Matthew, because he simply read the Bible, when he says, what's the most important thing you need to know about Jesus, he puts it all in the first line, and he's summarizing what the Psalms and Chronicles speak to. So, so rather than read all of the Psalms, here's what I want you to do. Hold your finger here and go to the Psalms. Go to Psalms chapter 2. And what I'm going to do in the next just five minutes is we're going to skim through the Psalms and then we're going to jump to Chronicles and then we're going to go back to Matthew and someone is going to have an aha moment. For those who don't, lunch is coming. So fear not. This thing's going to end. Just hang in there, right? Psalms 2, uh, Psalms 2 tells uh, the beginning of the story. Now, you're there, you're flipping, you're looking at the table of contents. Go to Psalm 2. I'll read a couple of verses, and then we're going to go three places in the Psalms. If you're new to the Bible, here's all you need to remember now. In the first part of the story, God uses three types of people to communicate his love. He uses the prophet. That person speaks for God. God speaks to the person like Moses who was a prophet, like David was a prophet, like Malachi was a prophet. God speaks to people, says, this is what I want my people to know. So God speaks to you and I through the prophet. He speaks through the priest. You and I want to go meet with God. You go to the temple, and that's where you meet with God. But you meet with the priest because you are not holy. I am not holy. God is holy. So the priest helps me. I bring the sacrifice. They help me, guided to the presence of God. And then God uses the king. The king leads the people in truth. The king's not just like a political figure. God's presence is with them. What God wants to do with the people, he does to the king. And as the king rules, God rules, okay? So prophet, priest, and king. And we see it all throughout. Moses is a prophet. And then we have the temple where there are priests. Now, Psalm and into Chronicles focus on the king. God speaks to the prophet, God speaks to the priest, God speaks to the king, and we're seeing something, and Matthew ties it together. So Psalm 2, what is it like for God to be king? Verse 6, God says, I have installed my king on Zion, the place where the temple was built, my holy mountain, and I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, so God says to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. All I want us to see, this may seem obscure, first early on in the Psalms, the blessed person is the person who listens to Torah, the person who listens to God's instruction. Psalms 1 and 2 are an introduction to the whole section of the writings. You will be blessed if you listen to God's words and you follow the king's son. 
This seems obscure to them. It seems obscure to us. Now in light of Jesus, this begins to all make sense. God is king and God has installed his son to rule. Blessed is the person here today who listens to God and follows his son. That's obscure. I'm going to hold on for more. We're going to get, when you read Matthew, you're going to go, oh, wow, I, I never saw that before. Now go to Psalms 29. Just go a few more pages to the right. Psalms 29. And we'll read two verses there. Are, are you still here? Okay, yeah. Thank, thank you. John Ogle's still here. That means everyone must obey and be here. Because John will take you out. Actually, not really. He can't. He, he, he didn't have it. No. All right. Psalm 29, uh, verse 10 and 11. So this is just there are psalms about the king. When the psalms are about the king, it's not just about David. It's actually about God's leading. Psalms 29.10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. What does God want to do? The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. As you read the psalms, when we read about what the king does we're supposed to long for God to be that for us. We're not supposed to read the Psalms and go, oh man, I wish we had David or a Republican or a Democrat or a Green Party or Independent or whatever your political persuasion. You read the Psalms, you're supposed to say, man, what would like life look like if God was enthroned as king? What would it look like if the Lord gave strength to me and my family? What would it look like if the Lord provided me with peace. The Psalms are pushing us towards what God's about to do. There's a longing. And if you've ever longed for something to be different, if you've longed for God to come and fill the void that no one else can fill, if you've longed to, to know what to do when you need to know what to do, or which way to go, or what decision to make, if you've longed to be led by something above you, Psalms are pushing us towards a king. Reminding us that God can be what no one else can be for you. All right, go to Psalm 47, just a few pages to the right. Psalm 47. I could have done, and I'm not exaggerating, 25 examples, but I decided to pick a few. The Psalms are filled with these references to the Lord being king, the Lord being king, because God speaks through the prophet, God speaks through the priest, and God speaks through the king. So Psalm 47, the first few verses, says, I uh, clap your hands, all you nations, shout to God with cries of joy, for the Lord most high is awesome, the great what? King over all the earth. So God is king, not just David. He, God, subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He, God, chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God is the one who brings things about, not just David, not just Solomon, not just any other human king. When God is king over your world, then joy, then peace, then inheritance. We were, Genesis 1, 2, created in the image of God to live with God. God's plan is about getting what happened at the beginning to be actualized in your world. God wants to lead you. He created you. He knows you. He wants to guide you. But he stirs in us the longing for a king. All right, now one more, and we're done with the psalm. Psalm 145. Psalm 145. 
Again, maybe you haven't seen the Bible this way or the Psalms this way, but this is going to help us to wrap up with Matthew 1, 1. So Psalm 145, and now we're going to read a whole lot because I've just given you little samplings, but this one's just worth a little more airplay. All right, Psalm 145, what does God want to do? What does God want to be? How is God king? Verse 8, Psalm 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. The Lord is good to how many? To all. He has compassion on how many that he's made? All. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Now, what is God's kingdom like? Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. But then God says about himself, God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So God's promise to David is not just about David and his boys. It's about people longing to be led by God. And as people follow the king and David's descendants, they're supposed to long to want to be led by God himself. And I hope that's you. We're in the middle of something, but I hope this morning you see Christmas as the invitation for you to be really led by God. Not like just like American Christian led by God, but really be led. What would life look like if day by day you knew that God was with you and for you and moving you and guiding you and correcting you? And challenging, what would life look like if God was the real leader and you were the real follower? Psalms like this stir us to that reality. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises. He's faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them food at their proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all he does, faithful in all he does. The Lord is near. Like, does does that sound like your experience with God? That he's faithful in all he does, that he's righteous in all he does, he's good in all he does. Does God seem near to you? Well, it says in verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear or revere him, respect him. He hears their cry and he saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he'll destroy. Well, side note. God is the king. And God wants you to experience the goodness of living under his leadership and his care. But the wicked, those who don't care about God, they don't end up in a good spot. So the Psalms remind us God is the real king, but you need to declare him your king. So what are we seeing so far? God speaks to the prophet, the priest, and the king. Why the king? What is it that God wants us to know by putting someone over? I think to put it in our vernacular, that you and I need more than a life coach. 
We need more than, you know, it's really hip and cool if you're a leader today to find someone who's going to be like a mentor and, you know, professional coaching is in vogue. And I think it's amazing to have a peer or someone who's above you kind of figure out your goals, your dreams, your vision and help you, you know, to, to, to go in that direction. We need that. We have blind spots. Would you agree? Like you don't know everything. Revelation. Like, you know. You're not as smart as you think you are. You're definitely not as smart as your mother thinks you are. And, and we, all, we all need more. So what, what Psalms are reminding us, and the Scriptures are reminding us, we need a prophet. We need God to get his word to us. We need a priest. We need someone to connect us with God because Genesis 3 is true and I have failed and I'm not holy like God, but I need him. So I need someone who's going to speak for God. I need someone who's going to get me into the presence of God. And I need a king. I don't need a life coach. Some of us see Jesus and following Jesus as one element to improve our existence. And that is a great place to start. And that, if you're here, you're like, you know what? I need something I don't have. Yes, Jesus provides that. But let me give you the little tip of the day. The tip of the day is that you don't need a life coach. You need a king. You need someone who is strong and who is just and right and always does what is good, and you need to submit your life to his leadership so that God leads you and you don't lead yourself. So what we don't need is a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of that and a little bit of the other, and I'm going to be okay. And Jesus provides for me when I feel bad. Like, you know, he's like whatever, like a, a little pill to make me feel better about, no, you need Jesus to speak the truth. And the truth about us is sometimes painful, isn't it? But when Jesus comes with even painful words like, you are a sinner, and God knows it, and he still loves you, and he wants to pull you in, and he wants to draw you close, and he wants to forgive you, and he wants to, but in order for you to live like God intended, a lot's going to have to change in your world. That's not a life coach. This is, this is, this is Jesus the King coming in. And so again, I'm not anti-coaching, but I'm I think we have an incomplete picture when we look at the scriptures and what Jesus wants to do. He wants to be the absolute leader, right? The boss, not just someone we hire and fire when we are done with what they have to offer. Jesus is all of these things. Now, that is the Psalms. We're going to fast forward to Chronicles, look at one spot, and then read Matthew 1 again. Let's do that. Second Chronicles, good luck finding it. It is, it's to the left. To confuse you, it's to the left of where you are, but it's the end of the Hebrew Bible. I know, that's just strange. So Second Corinthians, uh, Chronicles 36, the, we're going to look at the last words at the Bible in the order that Jesus read them. Does that make sense? So again, my disclaimer, I am not saying that the Jewish Bible, or the Hebrew Bible, and this Bible are, are different Bibles. No. 100% of the words are there. But the order in which Jesus read them, he would have read Chronicles last. And here's why I think this is, this is just a significant, if Jesus is there, and, and these are the last words of the volume of God, the last words that God said, Look at where Jesus fits in. So 2 Chronicles 36, we'll start in verse 15. Uh, and this is kind of like an end. The end is that basically the kings are bad. You read 2 Chronicles, the kings are just bad, period. 
Then there's this little note, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers. Who are the messengers? The prophets. So at the end of the Bible that Jesus read, God sent word through the prophets again and again because he had pity on the people and on his dwelling place. What's the dwelling place? The temple. What happens in the temple? Who's the temple? The priest. So God had been faithfully speaking through his prophets and his priests. But they mocked God's prophets, despised his words, scoffed at his prophecies until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. If you do not allow God to lead you, you do not end up on God's side. And to state the obvious, you don't want to be an enemy of God. It's not that he hates you. It's not that he's against you. But God made it all. So when God says this is right and this is wrong, we don't have a rightful place to say, God, you mixed it up. God is who God is, and we're called to hear his voice and follow him. Um, Verse 17, he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. So God raised up an enemy of the people, and this enemy came in and destroyed them. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned up all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. Review. God speaks to the prophet, the priest, and the king. God speaks to the person at his place, the priest, the temple, and through the king. So in the end, right before Jesus, there is no king. The prophets have been mocked. The priests have been destroyed. The temple is a wreck. And there is no king over Israel. And Psalms told us, God, not David, God wants to be king. Verse 20. He carried in exile to Babylon the remnant. So God saves a people who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The Lord enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So here's Jesus is coming to this knowledge. They kill the prophets, the temple's destroyed, the people have no king, but God protected the land. Jerusalem, which was destroyed, God let the land rest. God is preparing to... This is what people are reading at the time of Jesus in expectation. Verse 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord, not a man, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, who is not a God follower. So God steps in and moves an ungodly king to make a proclamation throughout the realm and also put it in writing. Quote, This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build the temple for him in Jerusalem and Judah. 
This makes no sense. The end of the Bible that Jesus read is that God raises up an ungodly king and speaks to him and says, God's given me this whole like, big kingdom and God wants me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord, their God, be with them. So the Bible that Jesus read ends with a story of hope. It begins with hope. God creates the world. God creates a garden. God creates people. We mess it up. God speaks through the prophet. God speaks through the priest. God speaks to the king because God wants to lead us. God wants relationship with us. And you want to know the history of the world? You want to know your story? Read the Bible. And the Bible is about ups and downs of people following and not following God. When we don't follow God, things do not go well. When we follow him, we go through struggles, but God is with us. And at the end of the story, even though Israel had messed up again and again. God had not forgotten them. God had not abandoned them. God raises up the land. God raises up the king. And the end of the story is that God's about to do something again. He's about to rebuild a place where his people can live in a relationship with him and they could be the people and he could be their God. And what is going to happen? Aha, mystery, I told you. Matthew 1, 1, and we are a few minutes from being done. Lunch cometh, says the King James Version of the Bible. Matthew 1.1. In light of all this, I just wanted you to see that the promise that's told in the Gospels does not come out of nowhere, but God had been doing this for centuries, and then the fulfillment. So back to Matthew 1.1. This is the beginning, or the genealogy, or the Genesis. The word here for genealogy is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word used in Genesis 2. For in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Matthew picks up on the story and says in the first part of the story, God created all that's created. And he created us to be with him. And now Matthew begins by saying, this is the Genesis. This is the genesis of a whole new way of experiencing God because Matthew had read the story and Matthew had met and lived with Jesus. He connects the dots. He sees Jesus as the fulfillment of God's story. So when Jesus comes, there's a new genesis. There's a new beginning. God is about to take the world in a whole new direction. He's about to lead us in a whole new way. So no longer will man say to their brother, know the Lord, for they will all know me. How will they all know me? The prophets remind us because Jesus, God says, I will give them my spirit. God is going to come and dwell with us, not in a garden. God is now going to come and live with us. He's going to reside here. He's going to dwell here. And he's going to dwell here when we get together. So where two or three gather in Jesus' name, God is with us. The presence of God, the kabod, the glory of God that can be seen, can be seen now and every day because there's a new Genesis. And the new Genesis, the new beginning of life with God, comes at the coming of Jesus. So this is the Genesis, the genealogy, the beginning of who? Jesus the Messiah. The Messiah, the Hebrew word is Mashiach. It simply means anointed one. Who was the anointed one in the first part of the story? It was the king. 
David was the Mashiach. David was the lowercase a, anointed one, called, separated, used by God to bring the glory of God. And now Jesus comes as the capital A, anointed one. He's the promise. Because Jesus has come, all of the presence of God that we could not enjoy, we now can enjoy. Jesus is the Messiah. And then look at what he does. The son of David. 2 Samuel 7. Out of your line, David, will come the one who will bring the blessing of, oh, Abraham, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew pulls together the entire Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, the teaching of God, the prophetic speaking of God, and the writing of God, the poetry of God, the story of God. Matthew, in one line, takes what took me 35 minutes to do. He did it in one line. And that's why we, as a church, immerse ourselves in the Scripture because we see Jesus as not just a teacher who does certain things for certain people. We now see the story of God and are in wonder and awe, and we worship because Jesus is the prophet that Moses was speaking about, and Jesus is the priest that no priest at the temple could be, and Jesus is the king that even David, who is Israel's greatest leader, he still fell short, he still was an adulterer, he still in the end was a murderer, he still was flawed. But Jesus is the perfect prophet and the perfect priest and the perfect king, and Jesus is the one that can bring us to God. And so we want to think, as we worship, as we get ready and prepare our hearts for not just the celebration on Christmas Eve and not just the celebration on Christmas Day, but for all of it, I want to remind you that Matthew begins his gospel with a reminder of the promise. As we get ready to sing our songs and to tell the story on Wednesday night, and I hope you're here and I hope your friends are here, it will be a glorious time for us to get in the story ourselves. Matthew reminds us it's the promise. The reason that we have to celebrate is the promise. The promise that Jesus would be the Messiah. The promise that Jesus is the son of David. The promise that Jesus is the son of Abraham. So three things that we need to see. And we want to pause and pray and ask God to make it clear to us. What we're going to do in a minute is we're going to stop the gathering in this way and give you a few minutes to listen to God. Because God's speaking. He speaks through the prophet. He speaks through the priest. He, pre he speaks through the king. He speaks through his son, Jesus. He speaks by the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said, I will leave with you. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. So God's given us his spirit. God can speak to you right here, right now. I believe that. So rather than me applying, here's what you need to do. We're going to invite God to speak to us in his own way by reminding us of a verse, by, by hitting home something you just heard, by a lyric of a song, by whatever means God chooses to use. We want to open ourselves to hear from God about what I need to do in light of what God has done. So three things that will frame it. Number one, Jesus is the prophet. So if you need to hear from God, hear me, my friends. I don't want to be disrespectful. 
But the only person who has the full, complete word of God is Jesus. So other teachers I respect and I love, and I think there are good teachings that are in line with Jesus in other faiths. But there is no one who has a complete story of God other than Jesus, because Jesus is God come. And so if you want to know what the Creator has to say about your world, then you need to invite Jesus to speak to you. Jesus is your prophet. And Jesus is the priest. There is no one who can make you right before God other than Jesus. So Jesus comes and does what a priest does. A priest stands in the place of the person coming to worship and helps them enter the presence of God. And Jesus does that in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He comes and becomes a man and lives a perfect life. And he takes our sin on the tree, in the cross, and he dies our death and he rises. And now he offers life and he invites you now to come. So now you can walk with God because Jesus invites you to come. Maybe you need him to be your priest. Not me, not this church, but Jesus. And then Jesus is our king. Maybe Christmas is the reminder to us that we are not in charge of our own universe. But if we've chosen to accept God's gift of salvation in Jesus, his gift implies his leadership. So maybe it's time to go beyond just saying, Jesus, save me from my own sin, and to go the next step and say, now Jesus, lead me in the way of life. There could be a habit. There could be some, some attitude. There could be something that you're engaged in or thinking about that is unlike God. And maybe God's gift for you this Christmas is for Jesus to be your king and him to speak truth into something that is off in your world and lovingly pull you back. A good king stops his people from falling off a cliff. And that's what God wants to do for us. I wonder this morning if you're open to God's leading. Uh, so we want to experience it. What am I saying? I'm saying we need Jesus. Uh, so if you're here and you, if you've not invited Jesus to be your spokesman for God, the prophet, the priest, the one who brings you to God, the king, the one who leads you, you can do that. Right here, in a moment, we're going to invite every one of us we're going to put our stuff aside in just a moment. And, and we're going to open ourselves up to hear from God. Uh, is it going to be loud? Probably not. Is it going to be like audible? Like, hello? You know, is it going to be in Spanish? If you're speaking to Jim, it'll be in Spanish. We don't, like, I, I, I don't know how God does what he does, but I do know that he speaks. And I do know that if I'm receptive, he will communicate his truth in a way that I can understand. And so we want to hear from him. What does God have for you? What does God want to be for you? If, you? if you're not following Jesus, this morning when we all open ourselves up to his leading, then you just speak to him and, and tell him your story. God, I thank you that you made me, and I know that I'm a wreck, but I believe that your son Jesus came to bring me right, make me right, and I want Jesus to come and do what I cannot do. And he will rescue you right where you're at this morning.